The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Sam Bankman-Fried perpetrated one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. But this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time. Sam Bankman-Fried is found guilty on all seven criminal counts of fraud, conspiracy and money laundering, with the FTX founder now facing a maximum sentence of more than 100 years in prison. A lackluster sales forecast for the holiday quarter takes a bite out of Apple in extended trade, even as the iPhone maker posts a beat on fourth quarter earnings and insists demand out of China remains strong. The S&P 500 notches its best day since April with all three US majors on track for their strongest week of the year ahead of today's non-farm payrolls report. And SockGen posts a third quarter net profit beat boosted by its investment bank as new CEO looks to overhaul the French lender. And the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey tells CNBC he believes they have reached the end of the hiking path after keeping rates on hold for the second straight meeting. But he shrugs off chances of a cut anytime soon. The risks are still on the upside. Um, and, and there are a number of risks that sort of shape that in terms of the cost of inflation. And the final thing we've been very clear on is it's really just too soon to start talking about cutting interest rates. Friday, everyone, and welcome to Squawkbox. The verdict is in. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is found guilty on all seven counts of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. It took just four hours for a jury to convict him after a month-long criminal trial in New York. The 31-year-old former cryptocurrency billionaire was convicted on two counts of wire fraud conspiracy. Two counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering as well as conspiracy to commit commodities fraud and as well as that uh, conspiracy to commit securities fraud. He faces more than 100 years in prison and will be sentenced in March. U.S. Attorney Damien Williams said Bankman-Fried had perpetrated one of the biggest financial frauds in American history and sent this message to anyone looking to follow in his footsteps. This case moved at lightning speed. That was not a coincidence. That was a choice. And it's also a message. It's a warning, this case, to every single fraudster out there who thinks that they're untouchable or that their crimes are too complex for us to catch, or that they're too powerful for us to prosecute, or that they could try to talk their way out of it when they get caught. Those folks should think again and cut it out. And if they don't, I promise we'll have enough handcuffs for all of them. CNBC's Kate Rooney has been following the trial from the very beginning and filed this report after the verdict. Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty on all seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. Inside the courtroom behind me, it was an emotional scene. His father had his head buried in his hands. His mother was quite emotional as well. Sam Bankman-Fried was stoic looking straight ahead when they read that guilty verdict. It wraps up a month-long trial in which we've heard from some of his top lieutenants, 
his closest confidants and his former girlfriend who ran the hedge fund Alameda Research. The prosecution here alleged that Sam Bankman-Fried siphoned $8 billion from his cryptocurrency exchange to his hedge fund Alameda Research, spent it on luxury real estate, celebrity endorsements, and venture investments. They really tried to say that he knew what was going on. Criminal intent was key here. The jury agreed and said in that verdict that Sam Bankman-Fried knowingly committed fraud, was guilty on all seven counts. It wraps up what has been an emotional roller coaster month of testimony. Sam Bankman-Fried found guilty once a billionaire on Forbes list, had a $32 billion crypto company, fell into bankruptcy almost exactly a year ago today found guilty in the Southern District of New York. His defense team says they will keep fighting. No word on an official appeal. The government will go into sentencing for Bankman-Fried March 28th. Kate Rooney for CNBC Business News in Lower Manhattan. A big event here for the crypto space, and we've also got Arjun around the set with us, having covered a lot of the crypto industry. Just a few points first up. I mean, effectively, the courts threw the book at him, didn't they? All seven counts convicted on those. In terms of uh, the speed of this case, I thought this was quite extraordinary. It unfolded very quickly, right? We saw this uh, company, it was a real bright, shining star in the crypto industry. It crashed and burned about a year ago. We had Bankman Freed, then effectively indicted in December 2022, agreed to leave the Bahamas to, to face those fraud charges. And here we are, fast forward to the developments in November. So very quick in terms of the speed of execution. And the other points, uh, sentencing, we're going to watch that very closely. What sort of number we're talking about here, whether we're in a, a Bernie Madoff type of territory in terms of the, the length of sentencing, I think that's going to be quite key. But also the claims too from SBF and his team that he's innocent. Yeah. Uh, effectively, the message that was carried through was that what, haphazard genius that uh, events sort of got out of hand. Big issue here was lack of risk management. I think the prosecutors came well armed and were certainly fighting against that narrative with those who had worked with him, his former girlfriend, that uh, this was very much a case of lying and cheating and stealing money. Yeah, and I mean, you, it, it kind of gives you a clear sense then. It's, it's one of those where you, you could really look back in history and see a similar case kind of happening where a lot of the friends or a lot of the people you did a, a lot of these crimes with really coming to the fore and saying actually this is what he made us do i mean you just think back to enron not so long ago right um uh, i think it was andy fastow the the cfo then went off and, and actually said well actually it was jeffrey skilling who made me uh, pretty much do all of this and and yes all of that is in obviously trying to get uh, a lesser term or lesser sentence then uh, as well for your own crimes. But it gives you a clear sense that um, everybody was part of this. And for them to still say that they're going to fight these charges vigorously is a big question mark as to what do they feel like they have in store. Karen, you mentioned that the pace of the trial, mm. which was interesting. I thought really the writing was on the wall from December when his closest confidants, his his co-founder Gary Wong of FTX, his ex-girlfriend Caroline Ellison pleaded guilty to some of those charges and then agreed to help the prosecution. That really was where the turning point I think in this trial was and really what helped to bring this to a rapid conclusion. The picture they painted was one of FTX as the mastermind. That was really the sort of image of him, the picture they painted, of SBF even, as, as the mastermind behind everything that happened. And I think that's what the jury was convinced about in the end, obviously, as we saw uh, with the verdict. I, I thought in terms of sort of the broader crypto, crypto world's view of this, obviously, you know, we've been speaking to executives since this trial kicked off and they've all been watching this. And the attorney general's comment, I thought was interesting, where he said this 
kind of corruption is as old as time. And he said, while the cryptocurrency industry might be new, and the players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new, this kind of corruption is as old as time. And that is the message from the crypto industry. This is not a crypto problem. This is pure fraud. And that is the message we've heard from executives, a number of crypto executives I spoke to, we spoke to over the past few months. That is what they're saying. So they will be very happy, I think, about the way that this is, con the broader industry, how this is concluded, because the way that it's been shown is, yes, it is about crypto. Yes, it's a, a person involved in crypto, but actually this was just pure fraud. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the crypto industry has been so opaque, right? It's uh, an in, in its infancy. I think everybody describes it as the Wild West because of the lack of regulation. The fact that there was an ability for the company to have funds here, customer funds that they could dip into and then just move to another part of the business. This is something that is not allowed to happen in US banks and US financial institutions. In European companies, European institutions, in most established jurisdictions, there are regulations to stop this type of behaviour. But it happened because I think of the, the very early stage nature of crypto, the, the lack of uh, securities regulators pouring over the books and the setup of, of some of these companies. But the, the, the nature of how quickly the investigators were able to pull together the bits tells you in some ways it might have been simplistic, despite it looking complex from the outside initially. Uh, I think what comes next is going to be so interesting because we know that the crypto industry has been impacted by this case. I mean, the, a lot of the early commentary was that all the, the different issues that were blowing up with the various crypto players and of course FTX is one of the big ones it was just extending out the crypto winter and now that we have some conclusion here to an extent around FTX and in fact there are more cases coming but we had the, the big one out of the way will this be enough to clear the decks for the crypto industry I think it's it's come at the right time because you've had uh, the talk about ETFs around Bitcoin potentially being approved at some point in the next few months by the SEC uh, you've got also sort of the, the broader macro in terms of is the Fed going to calm down on the, on the rate hikes that is supporting uh, risk assets right now. That's a helpful thing. You've got the big so-called Bitcoin halving coming up in, in, in uh, next year in May, where that is often very supportive for the price. And now you've got this sort of big trial, this big sort of scandal put to the side. Uh, for now. And that is going to very much, I think, be supportive uh, for the crypto markets. Uh, Bitcoin sort of sort of down slightly. This has been trading in a sideways pattern since it broke the 35,000 barrier. But certainly this is going to, I think, clear a lot of that, that, that sort of uncertainty around crypto for now in terms of perhaps what was, what was holding that, that price ascension back. And we know with regulators, it's a fight as to who's going to regulate the industry. We've seen that play out in the United States. And this sort of sets the bar, at least for the base level, where regulation should start. It's almost a, just a beginning, a building block for the industry as such. But uh, we're going to push on other big tech news overnight as well. Yeah, another big story to have come out, of course, the earnings then of Apple, whose shares fell in extended trade after the company beat expectations for its overall fourth quarter numbers, but issued disappointing guidance then for the upcoming holiday season. The CFO, that's Luca Mestri, said the tech giant expected sales in the all-important holiday quarter to be similar to last year, so pretty much flat when Wall Street was anticipating that the company would guide to a near 5% increase. Elsewhere, the tech giant says it's seen lower demand for iPads and watches in the past few months, as well as Macs, which saw sales dip 34% on the year. Arjun's still, of course, with us. Arjun, this story is not necessarily just about the iPhone sales, which, yes, managed to pick up 2%. We could speak about the iPhone 15 being part of that, but I mean, that was only a week's sales or so. But really, it's about those declining sales, 
But I'm going to ask the question even just about the services revenue. I mean, that, that is still a big part of the business, around 30, 30 odd percent or so. That's right. It was an $85 billion business in Apple's last fiscal year. It's huge. It's huge. And that was the only bright spot, really, I'd yeah. say, in, in what was a dismal quarter, an excuse-ridden quarter. If it wasn't the strong dollar, it was the tough comparables. Uh, there was all sorts of uh, reasons the management gave around you know, why revenue dipped again, why the guidance, and in particular, this was the big point, the guidance for the holiday quarter. Yeah. This is supposed to be the blockbuster quarter for Apple that we're in right now, heading up to the holiday season, brand new phones on the shelves uh, but there's a number of issues uh, around that there's supply constraints on the ex more expensive models likely to do with the, the very cutting edge chips that are in those uh, manufactured by TSMC but all in all the iPhone 15 commentary was that it is doing better than the 14 but still we're not going to get that sales growth which tells you where are the laggards you know we've got a new Mac uh, on the market coming uh, next year I believe so that's not going to add wearables still feeling some pressure the iPad iPad still feeling some pressure so it's a pretty tough environment I think just generally for for consumer electronics and the consumer but service is the bright spot up 14% year-on-year Apple showing that it can really leverage that massive install base of more than a billion iPhone users and continue to sell them all the products from iCloud to Apple music etc Tim Cook actually said uh, that every main service that the company has hit a record in the quarter so certainly a bright spot in what is a dismal quarter. I think market really now just wants to see what where the growth is going to come. They want to yeah. see more positive commentary in the iPhone 15. This was the new phone, titanium, all of these new features, brand new chip. Where's the growth? Yeah, where is the growth? Josh Corrin, founder and CIO at Musketeer Capital Partners. Let's put that question to you. Where's the growth going to come from? I mean, you've long said that this company uh, is really actually in need of innovation, particularly on its hardware side. Right, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back on the show. I appreciate it. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, in, in terms of the growth, first of all, I think that investors are are, are used to the services growth, right? So 16% services growth in the quarter is clearly a big part of the bull case here, and investors want to see that going forward. Um, that services growth is being boosted as well by price increases that they've been able to push through, which just, again, kind of shows the value add and proposition of that, that Apple services give to society. Right, everything from all different types of content consumption. Um, going into next year, people really want to see the iPhone grow, and I think that the bright spot from the fourth quarter guidance commentary was that that they expected iPhone growth. And like you mentioned, there were really a lot of excuses here, but they're pretty valid. So if you think about it, there really are very difficult comps, um, and you know, less product releases this year in that specific quarter, a whole less week in the calendar year for them. So um, you know, if you strip out those tough comps and then think about later in calendar year 2024 for Apple, you know, you see that iPhone 15 really start to kick in and, and hopefully for them that that takes some share. Um, and then you see these new Mac releases and iPad releases. And if you think about it, there's a tough comp in this upcoming quarter, which means that there's an easier comparison in a quarter after that, right? So there's plenty of opportunity over the next calendar year for this company to grow. But in our opinion, what you're seeing here is kind of what we mentioned before also on the show, which is just that the company is so big. And at this point, it's almost less a matter of market penetration for them as it is two things. One, Apple just mirrors the global macro. So we see consumer confidence is weak globally. Everyone knows what's happening in the world right now. Um, and I think that you're seeing that kind of flow through to Apple's numbers, just given the fact that they pretty much mirror that. Um, and two, 
innovation. I mean, this iPhone 15 and then the next iPhones coming out after that, like we mentioned before, they, they need to keep innovating and just having new products, new content consumption methods to keep this Gen Z millennial kind of crowd engaged because there's more and more competition from them coming around the corner everywhere that you look. Josh, can I just uh, jump in and ask about China as well? We saw revenue decline 2.5% in the September quarter. Uh, there's a resurgent Huawei uh, now, um, it's obviously still a, a pretty tough macro environment out in China as well. Um, how much of a headwind do you expect that to be for the company going forward? Or, or, or do you feel that Apple still has a pretty strong position in that market? No, it's a great question. I mean, China's historically been a big source of growth for Apple. So it's definitely disappointing to hear the weakness there. You know, however, I think we can all kind of acknowledge China macro is really difficult right now, right? Maybe even more so than than, than in North America and Europe. Um, so you're seeing, you know, less, you know, uh, more reluctance from the high-end consumer there to spend money on a new phone that maybe they don't need. So you probably had consumers there that were just habitually upgrading every year. Maybe they're dragging it out now another year just because over the past year, the disposable income has gone down. And that is totally valid, right, given the size of Apple, and doesn't necessarily spell some kind of draconian outcome for Apple's market share in the future. Um, we would note that over, you know, the past year and in the coming quarter, even given the iPhone growth guidance, there are some new kind of like white label smartphone releases going on in China. There's a new LG phone, you know, there's a bunch of new Android devices, and Apple still, uh, you know, is guiding for overall growth and, and is not really calling out that much weakness in China market share outside of macro. So we're not really concerned concerned about China. We just think that China is a spot where, where the macro economy is really weak and consumers really just are, are saving their money right now. Josh, is there a problem with Mac? If you look at the, the numbers here, Mac business was uh, down 34% year over year. What we're seeing in, the, in these numbers suggests that there's just no appetite for some of the bigger devices. Is this, this the consumer? Is it Apple? What's going on in the backdrop here? Yeah, another great question. And I think that overall, if you think about it, um, just think about where the consumer is heading, right? So consumers are spending the most time engaging with platforms that are helping them create content that they can take on the go, right? It's smaller devices. So the average consumer is not spending as much time in front of their desktop PC anymore. And, and I think we all just kind of know that that's a reality, right? Um, whereas, you know, maybe some of the professional consumer is, but if you think about a lot of the professional work world, most of these platforms, for example, in, in our industry are based off of Windows, right? So you, you're really relying on the consumer, which is experiencing a weakness in consumer confidence and spending and a secular shift away from time spent on desktop PCs, whereas Mac has always kind of been kind of the, um, you know, the anomaly PC, the, the, the niche product, right? So the all of these things put together spell a Mac decline. I think that the Mac situation probably will also get better with global consumer macro like everything else with Apple. But that said, there's definitely a shift away from desktop PCs in general. And as more and more cheap Windows devices come out, you know, you can see that headwind to Mac uh, continuing to materialize. Josh, thank you very much for joining us today. Josh Corum with us, founder and CIO, Musketeer Capital Partners. Now coming up on the show, SockGen has missed forecasts for its third quarter net income. Charlotte does join us then to break down those numbers. Plus... Elon Musk and UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak sit down as the country's AI safety summit wraps up. We'll bring you the highlights then from that conversation a little later in the show. And Aksha says it's on track to meet its full year targets. That's after sales rise 2%. In the nine months of the year, we'll break down the results of the CFO. That's Alban de Maine 
That exclusive interview is coming your way at 7.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. It's been a really big trading week on markets. We want to show you some of the numbers as a result. Uh, big debate has been raging as to whether we'd get a year-end rally. I think we've had a rally unfold before our very eyes this week. It's certainly been a strong trading pattern yesterday, giving us plenty on the tape. You can see right across the board, all three major indices playing in that market bounce. And if you look at the earnings, markets were a little bit underwhelmed by the guidance coming into this latest quarter and what lies ahead for the next quarter. The amount of revisions for the next quarter have been somewhat stronger than expected, which would naturally be a fade for markets. But we haven't had that. So one would argue perhaps the Fed has been all dominant this week. The commentary from Jay Powell and the signaling around interest rates has been more significant, along with the refunding process by Treasury. And as a result, take a look at the the market performance so far this week it has been a stunning performance for a trading week we've had four plus percent to the upside for the dow and for the s p telling you about the journey we've seen in those two major indices at a sector level real estate has been bouncing back up about six odd percent healthcare the laggard up about three odd percent by comparison a couple of other major places where you've seen some uh, appetite i mentioned the real estate uh, sign financials as well and you saw it in the banks in the regional banks the mainstream banks very strong bounce back there this is a look at some of those regional names you can see uh, citizens up uh, seven odd percent Corp up 8%. So we've uh, certainly ticked higher on those names. And when it comes to numbers, the KBE and KRE tipping over their 50-day moving averages intraday yesterday for the first time since September. So momentum certainly back in the trade. Now shares in those four regional US banks do jump in Thursday's session after billionaire investor Bill Gross said he is buying shares in the sector. Gross name-checked Trust Financial, Citizens Financial, Key Corp and First Horizon in a post on X. Speaking to CNBC, Gross outlined his strategy. Regional banks are, uh, are beneficial or benefit from lower interest rates. And so we've gone down by 40 basis points. Many of these banks, including Bank of America, including uh, Schwab, etc., have long-term positions, long-term bond positions in their portfolio. And so, you know, a 2 or a 3% rise in prices is beneficial for them. The shorts around treasuries, what we keep hearing by some of the big name investors that they've closed out those shorts. The refunding process by Treasury this week has been quite crucial to the trade we've witnessed. And 4.66, it's not 5%, is it? And there was potential at one stage if we got the wrong type of news flow to tip through that 5% handle. We got through 4.75 as a market stop. And of course, we've dropped even further as that prop didn't provide any support. So we have certainly declined on that level. It's taken a little bit of a heat out of that yield. And as a result, provide a lot of cover for equity markets, as we just saw at the short end in a week where we had no Fed move, but we did have a lot of signaling around rates. We've just slipped below that. 
that 5% handle at the short end. To the Asian markets in trade for the Friday session, ex-Japan, Hong Kong is trading firmer, leading the charge for the region, 2.5% gain, very strong signals. The Shanghai market up almost nine-tenths of a percent. Solid all day for the Australian market, 1.1% in the green, and the Cosby also following suit. So Wall Street uh, certainly spurring appetite across the Asian markets. Let's take a look at the opening calls here in Europe. It's not been a bad trading week for Europe as well. We joined in the mix of uh, gains to the point of about three and a quarter percent so far before the session on the benchmark of the stock share of 600. Stronger signals out of the French market of the core. It has rallied close to 4%, even more on top of that on the Italian stock market. So as they set up for trade, we're looking to extend out these percentage gains, at least in the morning session. You can see a triple-digit point gain anticipated for the FTSE MIB. The DAX setting up nicely to nearly 80-odd points to the upside. So it certainly looks as though we're in for a bounce. The question is whether any of the news flow later on today, Arabile, can destroy that narrative. Yeah, we'll certainly be asking that question, right? And it's because that jobs growth uh, in the U.S. is expected to have slowed in the month of October, uh, a month that has, of course, been dominated by the UAW strikes against the big three automakers in Detroit. Now, Dow Jones is forecasting a gain of 170,000 jobs in today's key non-farm payrolls report with the unemployment rate set to stay at 3.8%. Wage growth is expected to grow, uh, estimated to grow by 0.3% on a monthly basis. So the question then, Karen, is is risk back on? Is that is that what this pretty much is already that we just all of a sudden turn the it's almost as if we turned the tide. We got to November and we just said we're going to now turn uh, huge rallies in bonds, stocks, risk assets are, are, are back on. You had what some are calling a dovish pause, which you could question from the Fed. And you had perhaps a hawkish pause then from the Bank of England, even though they didn't make note of how they're not going to say that cuts are in play, but definitely not going to be hiking any any further from here. Is risk back on? It's what I alluded to. The re-rating on stocks, I think, would come from the Fed, from the central bank, not hiking any further versus the earnings profile. Because the earnings, in some ways, while the quarter has been okay, the next quarter, the guidance for what lies ahead has been soft and that's a problem if you're looking at fundamentals but i think there's been a wider view on the market that everything's been tossed out with the last uh, route we've seen over the three-month window so there's been buying opportunities at individual stock levels so i think you've seen a little bit of momentum come back into the mix thanks to the fed and as a result we've got that upside push the question is how long long it lasts and when it comes to the jobs report i think this is fascinating this from high frequency economics just pulling out uh, whether we've seen uh, the wages side going to be quite key here um, that it's uh, this was the message from Jay Powell it's not the case that wages have been the principal driver of inflation so far so just how sensitive will the Fed be to the jobs numbers later on today we know there's certainly been a push on the wages you mentioned the strike action and just what negotiations have done we've had other data over the course of the last seven days telling us that employers are paying up and there's been a re-acceleration in job offerings but is that going to be a trigger for more demand. Is it going to keep yep. some of the uh, prices elevated at this point and some of the heat on the central bank? Has the Fed become too price sensitive or is there even such a thing? Because yeah, they've made note of consistently saying they're going to be, they're going to be watching um, you know, the data. Have they become too data sensitive, should I say, is the, is the actual term I was looking for. Um, you know, all of, this, all of these numbers are moving in different ways 
and perhaps just trying to make sense of it all is becoming a little bit tougher. I mean, it's just like look at... It's the parcel, though, isn't it? The it music is. stops and you yeah. open, you think you might have something, there's nothing there. <laughs> and then there's nothing. And then you open something, the next time it stops, and there's something gigantic yeah. there's a big surprise. Yeah. I think the Fed is so jumpy because it doesn't know what data it's going to be just had as on as a the rest of us. Is that what... It, it feels almost as though if I don't know, they should know, but right. in some ways they really don't. I mean, just look at the dollar, right? It's pushed lower as well on the back of, of course, U.S. bond deals themselves uh, coming off quite significantly. But the dollar is still up around 2% for 2023. So this non-farm payrolls data itself could actually determine if there's just a little bit more sell-off uh, in, in that dollar. Um, you also saw the, the pound continue to lose ground despite the Bank of England having initially said um, that, you know, they're going to hold rates. Yes, they're not looking at cuts yet. But right now, they're pretty much seeing things as restrictive as possible. So what happens for the dollar then? That index has fallen. The dollar index, that is, two-thirds of a percent as well. Its worst daily performance since mid-July yesterday is pretty much what we saw was the first negative session in three. It's yeah. down a third week to date. If we're calling out some of the big trends, I mean, for me, it was the ARK Innovation Fund. That's where you yeah. saw some huge moves this week, up 12 plus percent. Uh, you've seen it elsewhere in the banks, I mean, 7.4 percent. To me, what you've seen is that the market can be very aggressively if you've got a call that central banks are at the end of that rate hiking cycle, if there's any softness coming or less hawkish commentary coming into the mix, you're seeing fairly significant moves. Because if you keep in mind what most commentators have said to us, they didn't really see a reason to be aggressively buying equities at this point. Yeah. They think there are other alternatives. The bond market is the most compelling trade. That message has come through very, very clear in recent weeks. The only opportunity has been on the quality defensive names where there's been a sell-off. Mm. So how much stock do you put into this momentum you've seen? Uh, you not in, was this not the right time? to be priming yourself for, for a time when your portfolio would be able to pick up. I mean, finding those, those, those quality stocks as you, as you were speaking about. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.